Man, I, I hope you were as moved as I was by that time of worship. I, I just told Reggie, we, we don't even need my sermon. It's just, <laughs> that was enough right there. We just met with the Lord. I think we're all ready to be done. But I got a Bible, I got a microphone, got a camera, so I'm going to go ahead and preach anyway. But, man, praise God that we have already met with him. That's the turning point for any of our lives is meeting with the Almighty God. A little over a month ago, I, I sent out on Facebook a, a question uh, just to whoever would listen, primarily to those of you who are part of Filder Church. And I just asked the question, so coming up into the fall, if, if we were to do a sermon series on any subject matter, what would you most want to hear from the Lord about? And I was, I was real surprised by the amount of comments that came in. I really appreciate those of you who responded. There were about 160 different comments but as I was looking over those comments, there was one that kind of rose to the top that most people were saying, I would love to hear what God's word has to say about this. And that subject matter was mental health. And I think people were just recognizing after this pandemic that we're entering into a crisis of mental health. And so about a month ago, we decided we're going to go ahead and do a sermon series beginning off in the fall semester about mental health. And we had no idea that it was going to be even more thrust into the limelight by, by Tokyo Olympics and Simone Biles when she pulled out of the uh, the gymnastics team event, not because of health reasons, but because of mental health reasons, not, not physical, but mental health reasons. And, and that just, you know, thrusted the conversation right there to the forefront of the whole world. And since that moment, it's been the, one of the top moments of conversation for athletes, for CEOs, for school kids about to go back into what is surely going to be another weird year of school. And everyone's talking about mental health. But truth be told, it's not like this just started with the pandemic. I mean, this, this conversation has been growing exponentially over the last couple of decades. In fact, I have some stats here in front of me, and, and I was surprised by, by this. So in 2019, so the year before the pandemic, there were studies that showed that 20% of U.S. adults experienced some form of mental illness in the year 2019. 20%, that's, that's one out of every five. If you were to line up five people, one of them would struggle with some pretty serious mental illness. Now, the word choice, so that's very important when it's, it's mental illness, what that's talking about is a persistent state of, of mental difficulty. Now, if you think about mental health, you know, there are all kinds of things that attack our mental health, and there are a lot of ramifications of it. You might have fear or anxiety. You, you might have depression. You might have uh, isolation or this sense of loneliness. You, you could have anger or bitterness. You could have addiction and a number of other things that could be common forms of, of mental unhealth. But a lot of those we all experience from time to time and they kind of come and go with it. You know, addictive behavior could be binge watching some Netflix. You know, you got a little depressive state where you're down kind of blue for a season. You come out of it. But mental illness is beyond that. Mental illness or disorder, that's when it becomes persistent to the point where it's disabling for you. You can't function normally because of its persistent state. And this is saying that in 2019, 20% of U.S. adults were in that persistent state of mental illness. I mean, it was already a problem before the pandemic ever hit. The pandemic just made things even worse. In fact, as you enter into some of the stats of the pandemic, there's a, a thing called the National, National Institute of Mental Health, and they put out some statistics during the pandemic that were shocking. 31% of respondents to this survey they did, which is a pretty massive one, reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. 31%, that's like a one out of every three are, have symptoms of, of anxiety or depression. I mean, it's just pervasive. They also mentioned that there was a 13% increase in substance abuse. If, if you think about how substance abuse works, you kind of the numbers go up and down over the course of the years. 
But over the pandemic, there was a spike, 13% increase in the use of chemicals to try to cope with all the weirdness of the world around them. And one of the ones that was the most shocking is that 11% of adults during this last year and a half have had serious thoughts of suicide in the last 30 days. Now think about that for a moment. 11%, that means over one out of 10, you line up 10 people, one of them has had serious thoughts, not just like a passing fancy, but serious thoughts about how to take their own life. This is double what it was the year before the pandemic. It is no, no small word to say that we have a mental health crisis right now. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, just think about the ramifications of, of the pandemic upon us. I and mean, we've all lived through a certain societal trauma through it. I mean, you, you got, first of all, this, this sense of social, social isolation. I mean, you had the stay-at-home mandate where we're stuck in our homes. We can't get out. And, and even when you do get out, you go walk somebody. You got a, a plexiglass in between you and the other person. You got to keep social distance. You got a mask covering your face. You, you might have a, a, a shield above that. And everything is saying, you keep your distance. I'm going to stay over here. There's, there's no social interaction. And that has a ramification upon the psyche of a human being because we are meant to interact with other humans. And you got beyond that this, this food scarcity problem that we have in our country. I, I, don't, I don't know if you had the same response my wife did, but I remember it was during spring break of 2020. She was going to the grocery store. There was just news of the pandemic starting to get bad. And it wasn't just toilet paper that was missing. Like we were at the, the local Kroger and like nothing was there. I mean, the shelves, it, it looked like former Soviet Union back in like the 80s or whatever. It was just, the shelves were empty. There was nothing there. And my wife, she had a freak out moment. I mean, she's just walking through the aisles, like putting anything she can into her cart because there was just, the food was gone. So she's buying like rice and beans and cereal. It is the most expensive grocery trip we have had in the history of our marriage, of 20 years of marriage, was that week right when the pandemic was starting. I saw it after. I'm like, Virginia, what have you done? She said, Jason, you understand. I got to feed my family and there's no food. There was a trauma related to that food scarcity to see everything gone. In fact, even now, when she goes to the grocery store, if she sees that there's something missing, it may just be like the yeast or the flour or something small, but when she sees something missing, a little panic begins to grow up inside of her because of the trauma of walking through and seeing nothing there. Food scarcity does that. Food insecurity does that to you. Then you couple the fact that there are so many during the pandemic who had a loss of jobs, who had furloughed work, and they weren't able to have the income and, and to buy the food. They were worried about when their next meal was going to come, how they were going to pay rent, and all this fear and anxiety built up. Beyond that, you have the constant interaction with sickness. COVID is spreading, but if, if, you don't, if you've forgotten, like it wasn't just COVID. People were still getting like the flu and strep throat and other things. And so there was a sickness that seemed to be everywhere. And, and there's hardly anybody that I know who hasn't lost a loved one or a friend or family, someone close to them because of COVID. Death has just gotten so close to us now. And all that collective trauma does something to us to destabilize our mental state. There is a mental health crisis right now. But what makes it so bad is that it's even worse among the young people. There were studies done by Medical News Today, and it talked about minors. So, so those who were uh, children or uh, young adults, uh, born all the way up to 17, and it talks about how 40% of them suffered from some form of psychological disorder over the last year and a half, with 17% of them suffering from acute stress disorder. 17% of them almost unable to function because of all the stress and anxiety building up inside them. They can't even face the world and life itself. 
this has been overwhelming for our young people. 20 to 30, uh, as, as low as 20, as high as 35% have expressed high levels of anxiety. And get this, 45% of them have expressed symptoms of depression over the last year and a half. 45, that's almost one in every two. Half of the young adult, pop, the children and the adolescents are experiencing some form, of de- some form of depression. It is overwhelming them. Now, if you're a parent, I know this doesn't come as a shock to you because you know what our kids have been through. Just how destabilized life is. School has been so uncertain. Like, okay, is it hybrid? Is it stay-at-home virtual only? Are you back at school? And things keep constantly changing. And then you have how different parents handle it differently. You got some parents letting their kids go out and do whatever they want. Other parents more protective. And so you got these kids looking at social media. Those kids hanging out. They feel left out and they're all alone. They've missed all these major milestones and rites of passage. They're missing prom and homecoming and games and some graduations and all of this just plays on the brain of these kids to the point where they can't even handle it. I mean, it is, there's no doubt we all recognize there is a mental health crisis right now in our country. But I know I'm not telling you anything new. Now, now maybe you didn't have all those stats that I have here, but you know there's a mental health crisis. That's why you were asking, let's, let's talk about this. The question you have isn't, is there or is there not a mental health crisis? You already got that answer. The question is, is there anything we can do about it? to which I want to tell you a resounding yes, there is, because God's word speaks to this issue. This morning, we're going to start in the book of Romans, chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to read in a moment verses 1 and 2. But before we jump into the passage of Scripture, I need to let you know what we're going to do with this this six-week sermon series. Uh, i got to approach it with caution. As a matter of fact, as I told our church body that we're going to be dealing with this mental health series coming up in the fall, I actually had a number of, of people can call me with concern or email me or text me saying, Jason, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about this sermon series. Licensed counselors, pharmacists, just worried church members. And they, they all kind of said the exact same thing. I said, Jason, the, when we trust you with God's word, but what we're worried about is that if you treat the subject matter too lightly, you could actually end up making people more vulnerable to mental health issues instead of more prepared to handle them. In fact, I had a, a, a woman in our church, just a precious lady in our, our congregation, come up to me and, and want to meet with me to say, Jason, I, I just, I just want to express some concern I have because it's something that happened to me during one of your sermons a number of years ago. It's probably eight or nine years ago. And she was so sweet about it. She was not accusatory about it, but she just said, Jason, there was a sermon that you preached a while back about faith and our response to it. And, and I know now, she told me, that, that you weren't saying this, but what I heard when you were preaching was that I'm struggling with bipolar disorder and it's a faith issue and therefore I should get off my medication and just believe that God has healed me and I'm going to be healed. She says, I know you didn't say that, but that's what I heard. And therefore I got off my medication and for years I struggled immensely as my life got out of control and it took some severe intervention for me to get back to a place of balance and, and getting back to help and, and medication that I need. And she was just saying, I'm, I'm just worried that if you're not clear enough, that same mistake may happen to others. And I'm so grateful she took the time to talk to me about it because I want to be as clear as I possibly can. I, I need to make sure, if you don't hear anything else I say, please hear me when I say this at the start of this sermon series. I have to know what I am and what I am not. I am not a licensed counselor. I, I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I am a pastor. I, I know that. I wasn't trained in counseling. I wasn't trained in psychology or psychiatry. I was trained in theology. 
And I know I have a lane I need to stay in. And so I wanna be really cautious not to get out of my lane. But I do believe that God's word directly speaks to mental health. And we need to talk to that. But let me, let me say this. Please hear me when I say this. If you are struggling with something severe, a mental illness, a mental disorder, there are so many times when just trying to change your pattern of thinking will not be enough. And you should have no shame and no guilt if you need to go to someone who is licensed, who is trained in counseling or psychology or psychiatry. There are excellent Christian counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists who can help you. And listen, if you had strep throat, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't feel shame about going to a doctor and getting medication. And if you're dealing with mental illness, you should feel no shame or no guilt about going to a professional and finding help, even if that help is medication. That is not a sign of a weak faith. That is a sign of gratitude that God has provided this for us. And I think Satan likes to lie to us and try to put shame upon us and tell us that we're not a good Christian or we don't have enough faith. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. God has given us people to help us and we should be quick to look for Christians who can partner with us and help us when, when just changing our thinking won't be enough. So I beg you, please, when you hear this sermon series, don't use that as an excuse not to seek help. Seek the help that you need. But I also wanna say this. I know that for many of you watching, you might be heading to places of mental illness and disorder that could be stopped if you would just recognize the war that is taking place between this year and this year. There's a war going on right now in your brain. There is a war that Satan himself is waging because he knows that your thought life will control who you are. That as you think will control who you become. And he is warring to get a hold of your mind. Now, I don't know if you recognize this, but your mind has the capacity to actually change your physical well-being. There's more stats here. There's a a study that was done by a doctor named Dr. Caroline Leaf. She wrote a book called Switch On Your Brain. And in this, she she tells us that somewhere between 75 or all the way up to 90% of all mental, physical, and behavioral illness comes from your thought life. You know, we, we, of course, we think about mental illness, but even behavioral and physical illness, so much of it comes by the way that we think. There's a study done by, by JAMA, that's the, the Journal of American Medical Association, and it says that about 80% of all primary care physician visits actually have a stress-related component to them. In other words, we go to the doctor because we're having chest pains, and it's actually stress. We, we go to the doctor because we're having migraines or because we're having neck issues and And at the end of it all, 80% of why we go there are stress-related in the reason that we go. Our thinking affects our body. There's no way around it. Uh, In fact, I think our thinking directs the entirety of our life. There's there's a great book about this. It's by a pastor named Craig Grishel out of Oklahoma. It's a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. I strongly encourage you to get your hands on the book and read it. But the very first sentence of the very first paragraph of the very first chapter of his book says this, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Here's what he's saying. As we think, so we become. Where our minds take us, they they form like a rudder that directs the very course of our life. This is why Satan wars so hard to get a hold of our minds because he knows that if he can fill our minds with garbage and trash and brokenness and lies, then he can distort us and he can control us. So he is throwing the book at us right now. 
He's throwing a global pandemic so that he can create fear and anxiety in us. He's throwing isolation. He's throwing political unrest and polarization. He's throwing hatred. He is decreasing our social interaction with others, increasing the influx of garbage like social media, Netflix, and all these things that we feel ourselves with that oftentimes aren't healthy so that he can control our mind because when he controls our mind, he controls us and he knows it. And he's waging war against our mind. But there's good news to that bad news. There is a counterattack. Satan is trying to conform us to the world, but God says, I have a means to which you don't have to conform. It's simply looking at God's control of our mind. This is exactly what Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 gets at. All right, so let's jump into the passage, see what it says, these two verses. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that first part, verse one, talks about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm actually gonna get into that a whole lot more when we get into the sermon series about the the Holy Spirit later on in the fall. I really wanna focus on verse two, where he says, we don't have to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We don't have to let Satan take us to the the worldly ways, he says we can actually be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Here's what he's saying. When we change the way we think, we can change who we are. We can transform ourselves simply by changing how we think, our minds. And I want you to know that is a powerful truth. And if that were alone in scripture, that would be enough. But here's what's so cool. It's actually backed by science. That thought is backed by neuroscience itself. Now, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm about to speak about some things that are going to make me sound like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm much more educated in areas that I'm not. Remember, I know who I am. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm just beginning to study. But I've been reading some fascinating things about the way our brains work, about how they're wired, about neuroscience. And I learned about something called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is, is this idea that our brains are constantly being re-sculpted and reformed, like physically adjusting based on the neurons inside of our head. So the neurons are the brain cells. And inside the neurons, they have the capacity to align through synapses. And these synapses send signals through these neurons, whether it's electrical or chemical, and they create what are called neurological neural pathways. These pathways control the flow of thought. These pathways will lead to parts of our brain that determine our actions or our behaviors. And, And the way these work and the way the brain shifts is that the more we have a thought, And the more continuous that thought is, the more developed that neural pathway becomes. Think of it like a a walking trail. So like if you're walking through a field and you walk over at one time, you start to push down the grass and stuff, but it'll pop back up. But if you walk over that same field every single day in the exact same way, do it for about a week, it'll start beating down the grass and turn into the dirt and you'll see a clear pathway. You do it for a month and it really starts to broaden. You get a whole bunch of people walking through that pathway and it's a fully developed walkway that's easy to find and walk through. That's the way our brains work. Every time we have a thought, it's like trampling a trail in our brain, connecting all these synapses and, and these neurons so that you create a pathway for information to travel. And the more you have a thought that's repetitive, the more, the more that pathway gets solidified. Now here's why that matters. Every single moment of your waking day, 
you are bombarded with millions and millions of data inputs that you can't possibly fully take in. So what your brain does is it creates these pathways to interpret all the inputs, to reject what you don't need, to allow to enter what you do need, and it will follow these neurological pathways into your brain in order to determine what your response should be. And the more they're they're walked out for you and pressed down for you, the easier it is for that information to lead to that behavior. This is exactly why addiction is so difficult to break. Because all addiction is, is a, a huge pathway that's been created by a constant pattern of thoughts. So if, if you think about how it might work for an alcoholic. So let's say they're driving home from work. It's been a really stressful day. And as they're driving home, the thought hits them, man, wouldn't it be nice to have a little glass of whiskey? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be relaxing? And so they, they have that, they get a little, little shot of joy from the thought of it, and they get home and they have their glass of whiskey and they relax them. It feels good to them. The next day, they're driving home and they have the same thought again. It's a stressful day and they go, man, it'll be nice when I get home and I have that glass of whiskey. And what they're doing, each time that thought happens, is it's creating and, and broadening that neural pathway for the thought to come in to lead to the behavior, let me go grab a glass of whiskey. Now you do that over weeks and months, what happens is now you've created a trigger that every time you get in your car, the thought immediately comes, oh, I want that glass of whiskey. Why? Because there is a broad pathway that takes from that moment you enter the car all the way to that behavior of grabbing, grabbing a glass of whiskey. This is why alcoholics struggle so much. They create all these trigger points because they've created this broad pathway that leads to grabbing a drink. It's because the neurological pathway has been formed. Their brain has actually created a channel with which that information flows directly to, let me go grab a glass of whiskey. It's the same thing with pornography, by the way. It, it starts with a thought. They see something inappropriate and it triggers some kind of reaction, some other thought or some other action. And that's, that one thought might not create a, a pattern of behavior, but then they have that same thought again the next night or some other way. And it, it gets so developed, that pathway, to view the opposite sex or whatever in such a way that it creates a trigger point inside of you that all you have to see is a commercial or, or a woman that's walking by that looks nice or look at you with a smile or something that triggers some kind of mental movement toward sexually inappropriate thoughts and behavior. It's a neural pathway that's been developed by repetitive thought. So here's what it's saying. Our thinking actually creates channels that changes the very structure of our brains. Now addiction, that's the bad side of things. But there's a positive side. The good news about neuroplasticity is that your brain can change yet again. You can move away from those negative pathways and create positive pathways. In fact, there, there was a fascinating study that was done. It was a, a study about the way the brain works. And there's a whole research project with a lot of people involved in it where they studied the human brain. They did scans before and after an eight-week experiment. And during that eight-week experiment, these people were challenged to to pray, to have focused prayer for just 12 minutes a day for eight weeks. And they scanned the brain before and they scanned the brain after. And they actually were able to, to notice on the brain scan physical differences in the brain after just eight weeks of 12 minutes a day of praying. It literally changed the structure of their brain. And there's a, a doctor, his, his name is uh, Newberg, Andrew Newberg. And he, he talks about how the, the fact that we, whenever we have these times of meditation and prayer, they form the frontal lobe of the brain. Now, the frontal lobe is the, the managing and processing. It's the thing that, that helps us maintain control of self. 
And sometimes that has to offset the amygdala. The amygdala is the fight or flight part of our brain. It's the thing that really gets anxious, heart rate goes up or makes us like, you know, like the Hulk, like a raging you know, maniac going out. That's the amygdala taking over that animalistic fight or flight side of things. But the frontal lobe actually counteracts that and helps us not freak out. So what the studies show is that when people meditate, in fact, there's a whole study done on monks and how they meditate for hours and how they actually, when they have pain that comes to them, it's not that they don't feel the pain, but their frontal lobe actually is able to counteract their amygdala so they don't freak out. They don't have the, 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 heart, the high heart rate or the same stressors as others do when they experience pain because they have such a developed frontal lobe. In other words, prayer and scripture reading and meditation actually change the physiology of the brain. So when it goes to verse 12 and it says, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is literally saying not just spiritually, but physically we can transform our brain just by the way that we think. I don't know about you, man, that's really good news for a person who's got a brain like mine, that it's not done yet, there's still hope. To which you're hearing me going, okay, Jason, man, that's pretty cool stuff, I didn't know that. I love the fact the brain can be changed, but you haven't told me how. I mean, how do I change my brain? Well, I'm glad you asked. There, there, there's a simple way. In fact, the Apostle Paul in two separate places tells us there's two things you got to do if you want to change your brain, if you want to live up to that neuroplasticity and re-sculpt your brain. You got to capture the negative thought and you got to replace it with a good thought. Capture, replace. Capture, replace. That's how you go about it. First one, the capturing comes in, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 10, now I want to read to you verses 3 through 5, and I want you to see the Apostle Paul talk about how we can actually take captive these thoughts. We can trap them because there is a war going on in our brains, and if we don't capture them, they can germinate and create evil in our hearts, in our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, listen to what it says. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What this is telling us is that we have the capacity and the power to war against Satan who is coming against our thoughts. And this is a spiritual war against our thoughts and we can take the thoughts captive. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Satan is warring against your mind because he wants to plant inside of you lies that he knows that if you'll just believe them, that you will have a distorted perspective of reality. I, I don't know if you've read much in the New Testament. I know some of you have read it a ton, others of you haven't read it at all. But Jesus himself tells us about the nature of Satan, that Satan in his very core is a liar. Deception is his main tool. In fact, keep your place in 2 Corinthians, but I wanna read for you John chapter eight, the second part of verse 44. Jesus here is describing the devil, describing Satan. Here's what he says. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who Satan is. He is a liar and he is the very father of lies. So whatever comes out of his mouth is lie after lie after lie. And here's what's so interesting about Satan. He hadn't changed. That's still his same tactic. The way he wars against our brains is by trying to implant lies in us. And he's been doing the same trick for so long now that even non-spiritual people can recognize the lies that people believe. In fact, if you were to take a, a basic course on psychology, just, just like Psych 101 in college somewhere, it doesn't have to be Christian, just any psychology course, they will tell you that the lies that people believe fall into three main categories. 
This is just like scientific stuff done as they've examined people's minds and the lies that they believe. Three main lies that people believe in. It's I'm helpless, I'm worthless, and I'm unlovable. Those are the three lies that psychologists will tell you that create so many of the other problems that we have. These lead to depression and anxiety and anger and and loneliness and, and addiction and all these other things that we have. It's born from these three lies. The same lies that Satan has been thrown at us from the very beginning. I'm helpless. I'm a victim. There's no way out. I'm totally out of control. Creates bitterness and anger and this sense of I'm overwhelmed. I'm worthless. I got nothing to offer. This just creates a sense of just depression and, and like I, got, I, I got no hope. And that third lie, I'm unlovable. No one wants to be around me. They'll find out how screwed up I really am and we push away from everybody else. Our problems are born from these three lies. And what Satan does is he tries to put one, two, or three of these lies in our brains and watch them germinate. And the moment we start to believe them, they form our reality. And they change our brain to the point that they hardwire these pathways that alter our very behavior for the worse. Now, I want you to know, I'm telling you this not just because I read it in a book. I, I'm telling you this because I've experienced it myself. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some stuff uh, that, honestly, I don't want to tell you. Uh, I wouldn't tell you if I didn't feel like I needed to tell you because the Spirit's telling me to tell you this to help you understand my own personal journey. I, I, I fall prey to one of those three lies. I have, for as long as I can remember, it was that middle one, the I'm worthless one. For as long as I can remember, I've struggled with this sense of uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm always going to fail. I'm never going to be good at something. And, and it came from a really weird place, to be honest with you. It came from the praise and encouragement I got from my parents. My poor parents, when they try to do everything right, they speak words of life and kindness to me. They love me. And I still find a way to distort it. But I remember growing up, my parents, would they were so encouraging. They would say such great things about me that I had in the back of my mind this thought that was implanted there by Satan himself, that I'm worthless, that what they say about me can't possibly be true. Now, I gotta tell you, some of them I know aren't true. My, my mom, she wears rose-colored glasses every time she looks at me. She would tell me when I was a kid, oh, mijito, you are so handsome. You should be a model. And I, I saw pictures of myself when I was a kid. You think I'm ugly now? You should have seen me when I was a kid. Man, I was just, I was dorky looking with huge glasses and just ugly as sin. And, and my mom looks at me and she goes, oh, you're gonna be a model. I look in the mirror and I go, that woman is deceived. That, she's not thinking right. And sooner or later, she's going to discover I'm not what she thinks I am. My parents would tell me I'm so smart. And I would just think in the back of my mind, they're sooner or later going to find out I'm not nearly as smart as they think I am. They'd tell me I'm athletic. And I would no, sooner or later, they're going to find out that I'm not athletic. And I just had this nagging feeling that I was never going to be successful. I was never going to amount to anything. And that just followed me all the way through follow me into college. When I started dating people, I, I remember I would always be the one to break off a relationship because I knew sooner or later that girl was going to realize that I was a loser. I wasn't worth her time. She was going to break up with me. So I was going to break up with her before she could break up with me. You want to know why? Because I had a neural pathway that led, that had been developed because of this lie that I am worthless and I interpret every bit of information through that lens and it takes its way to that behavior. I got to protect myself. People are going to hurt me because I'm worthless. They're going to find out sooner or later. So I got to be in my insecurity. I got to be cautious. I got to be distant. And I hurt myself over and over and over again. Brought it into my marriage. I would start interpreting things that my wife would do and I would say, well, she's, she, she's recognizing right now that I'm a loser husband and she's about to leave me because I, I, I'm, she knows now who I really am and she doesn't want me anymore. And I would distance myself from my wife. Happened in ministry too. I, I remember stepping into certain places and I would preach and I would get feedback that you did a great job and I would start thinking, oh man, 
Now I'm going to disappoint them too because they're going to hear me preach again. They're going to realize I'm no good. I remember when I got voted in to be the pastor of this church, I thought, well, I'll probably last about two years before they discover they, they hired a loser to be their pastor and they're going to get rid of me. It's just this constant nagging voice in the back from this hardwired neurological pathway that I've created over the years because I believed in a lie. But as I've been growing in my faith, as I've been seeking the Lord, one of the things God has been teaching me is that I have to learn how to take that lie captive. I have to learn to see that that is not who God says I am. He doesn't tell me I'm worthless. He tells me I am worth more than I could imagine. And I have to see that lie for what it is, a lie. I have to look at the behavior that's caused by it and I have to take it captive. I have to trap that lie and set it aside. And until I take that thought captive, I'll never find victory. But taking that thought captive all by itself will never be enough. Because if I take that thought and I set it aside in a box and I leave it there for a while and I don't do anything else, sooner or later that thought's going to break free from that box and it's come flying back into my mind and make it even worse. That's why the, Paul, the principle that Paul gives us isn't just take the thought captive. It's take the thought captive that's bad and replace it with something that's good. It's take captive, replace. Take captive, replace. So I take the lie captive and I replace it with a brand new truth. This is where he gets at in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Last passage I want to read for you this morning. Listen to what it says. Paul makes a clear point now, not just take it captive, but fill my mind with things that are above. Listen to what it says, chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to those words he's saying. He says, don't set your mind on things of earth. Don't set your mind on all the trash and garbage that Satan wants to put in. Set your mind on things that are above. Take your mind into holy things, into godly things. He says, when you fill your mind with those things, you won't be bothered with the things that are on earth. So you take the negative thought captive and you fill your brain with truth, God's truth, with scripture, with who God is. And you let that redefine you as you meditate on it over and over and over again. But I don't know if you noticed in that passage where the thought from above comes from. It comes from the gospel of Jesus. I mean, look back at what it says. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then, then you seek the things that are above. He says in verse 2, you set your minds on things that are above, not on earth, because you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ and God. Because we have died and been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, therefore, we can set our minds on things that are above. Let me, let me tell you why that matters. This is showing us that when we believe the message of the gospel, which is that Christ Jesus, he took sin upon himself. When he died on the cross, he was buried in a grave. Three days later, he rose up from the dead. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we get to join him and we die with him. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. And that redefines who we are. And the gospel counteracts all three of the lies. Do you remember the three lies? One of them was, I'm unlovable. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that God so loved you that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel says you are more loved than you can imagine. What was that other lie? I'm worthless, that lie I bought in for so long. The gospel says that an object is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. And let me tell you what the father was willing to pay for you. The body and the blood of his own son, he was willing to pay for you. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have infinite worth. 
Because an infinite price was paid for you. You are not worthless. You are worth an infinite price. And what was that other lie? That lie that said, I'm helpless? Let me tell you what the gospel says. The gospel says the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all of my unrighteousness and I am made holy. And when I'm holy, the Holy Spirit, which is also called, by the way, the helper, comes in to live inside of me. I'm not helpless. I have the very infinite helper inside me, God himself fighting my battles. Let me tell you what the gospel says. I don't have a helpless thought in me, a worthless thought in me, an unlovable thought in me because I know who I am in Christ Jesus. The gospel is what counteracts these lies. And the more we inhale the gospel, the more we fill ourselves with the truth of the gospel. And the, the times we take those negative thoughts captive, the more we find God owning our minds instead of the enemy. And the more we see our lives follow his pathway. So the question for you is, are you applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to every area of your life? Over the next five weeks, I'm going to give you strategies on how to take thoughts captive and how to fill them with gospel truth in every single one of these major areas. We're going to talk about fear and anxiety. I'm going to talk about depression. I'm going to talk about loneliness. I'm going to talk about addiction. I'm going to talk about anger and bitterness. Each one of those five things over the next five weeks and how we can take the thought captive and how we can fill our minds with gospel truth. And I want to encourage you to make it your practice every single week for the next five weeks. Come with your journal, with a pen, with your Bible. Come ready to learn because God wants to free you from these negative thoughts. And it can happen. Now let me say what I said from the beginning. This doesn't mean that if you're struggling right now with, with some kind of mental disorder or illness, that just trying to think a little bit more, trying to take a thought captive and, and fill it with something else is going to be enough. It, it may be that you still need the partnership of, of someone who's a licensed professional counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist, you might need some extra help. So I'm not telling you just come these next five weeks and you're gonna be healed for sure. You may need some additional partnership and don't be afraid to seek it. But every single one of us will benefit from this if we'll just let the gospel redefine who we are. And so in a moment, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. But before we do, we're gonna sing a song that reminds us that God tells us who we are. We are who he says we are. And we're gonna worship and remember before we take the Lord's Supper and know how loved we are and how valuable we are and how helped we are. But before we do that, though, I, I gotta say, I know there are some of you watching this right now. And you have bought into a whole bunch of lies and, and you're praying, okay, well, maybe these next five weeks will be enough for me. And you're going to try really hard to, to change the way that you think. And you're going to show up with your pen and your journal. You're going to try to learn and you're going to discover that it's not going to be enough. Because your mind without Christ will not be enough to overcome the lies of the enemy. There has to come a moment when you die to self. A moment when you recognize you cannot change your mind on your own. You are helpless on your own. But you turn to Christ Jesus and you ask him to forgive you of your sins. And you say, come into me. Change me. I need you, God. And when you're really serious about that, then you're willing to say, I need to die, be buried, and raised with Christ Jesus. And it just so happens there's a practice that believers can take that shows that very thing. It's called baptism. When you and I take the step of faith to say, I want Christ to be central in my life, then when we step forward and publicly say, I'm going I'm to be baptized, the whole imagery is that very thing that Colossians chapter 3 talks about, that we have died with Christ and been buried. We go under the water. And then it says, therefore, we've been raised with Christ Jesus, and we can set our minds now on things that are above. So we have a, a beautiful baptism celebration coming up in just three weeks where we're going to have all our campuses together, and some of you may need to join us. Be a part of that baptism celebration to say, I'm ready 
to die, to be buried and raised with Christ Jesus so he can transform this mind of mine. I'm ready to see his power. If that's you, all you gotta do is let us know. You can get your phone out. You can text the word next step to 94253 and you can let us know that you're ready to be baptized. And we wanna make sure you have that opportunity to be with us. But take that step of faith today. By the way, let me also say, if you're sitting there watching this and you're going, I, I need some help right now. My, my mind, I need some professional help. We want to help connect you with Christian counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists. And, and so you can go to that same form, next step at 94253, and you can let us know in the comments that you want, you want some help. And we'll try to connect you with somebody that we trust who can be a partner with you. But reach out to us and let us know. But right now is the time for us to worship the King of Kings and remember who he says we are. And when we're done with that, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper.